text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. It'll actually be 19 through 21, but let's read, starting in verse 18, and then ask the Lord for His blessing. This is His Word, the Word of the living God, the Word which is able to make us wise unto salvation. Amen? So let us approach with reverence. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Amen. Father, again, we would ask that you would meet with us in this time and open your word to our hearts, open our spiritual understanding, Lord. Help us who hear to hear more. To those who have the ability to hear, more will be given. That is your promise. And to those who do not have hearing, Lord, would you be gracious to open their spiritual ears this morning to hear and to behold the wonderful things of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, last time uh, we considered... Romans 8, 18, and the first part of verse 19 are really one particular aspect of verse 19, which is that Paul was setting out a, a scale, a balance for us, and he wants us to see that on the one side of the scale, we have represented all of the sufferings of this present time. That's not just in our personal lives, but all of the sufferings of all of the saints, we said, from the beginning of uh, history, ever since the, the fall in the garden, really. And on the other side of the scale, we are to place the glory of God that is to be revealed to us. And Paul's point is that that scale is weighted heavily in favor. It is full tilt in favor of the glory to be revealed. And the real key to the Christian life, if you were to put it in those terms, in terms of spiritual growth, is to meditate on the Word of God, to look at the Lord Jesus Christ, to look at the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and the work that, that they have accomplished altogether. And it's as we look at their work, at their persons, who they are, as their work, what they have done, what they are doing, and what they will do, which has been the focus as we look to the glory to be revealed, that our scales tilt properly so that we can appreciate and long for that glory to be revealed. That is the, the stamina that we need as we walk through this life buffeted all about by sin with, from within ourselves and our own sinful flesh and also in the world. And of course, with the devil who is in league with the world and with our own flesh to attack us constantly. This is the bread that we need to consider, to meditate on 
these wonderful truths. And specifically, we looked at this glory to be revealed in the light of the revealing of the sons of God from verse 19. This morning, we're going to look at a portion of Scripture in these verses which give us a unique insight that is hinted at elsewhere in Scripture but is not stated explicitly as it has been revealed here. And I want to draw out for us a few lessons from creation specifically. I retitled this message, Some Lessons from Creation for this reason. I think we're going to get to the groaning portion really next week. But for today, what are some of these lessons that can be drawn out from creation as we think of the sufferings of this present time and the glory to be revealed? And I also want to make a few observations on the text, which I hope will be encouraging to each of you as you walk in this newness of life that you've been called to. So Paul says this, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The word that he uses for earnest expectation, we have two words in the New King James here for this, but this is really one word in the Greek, and it's a compound word, which is so often the case with the ancient Greek language. It's the word that means from the head to watch. And it's kind of a strange construction if you think of it just at face value, but the idea is that there is an anxious and a persistent expectation of the creation. It's as if the creation is stretching its neck or they are stretching their necks. They're getting up on their tippy toes to look out on the horizon to what is to be revealed. That's the sentiment of this word, earnest expectation. It's a watching for with intensity, with eagerness. In fact, Paul used it in Philippians chapter 1 If you listen to verses 19 and 20, he says this, and this, of course, he's writing from prison. He says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation, same word, and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So here's the same sentiment the Apostle Paul expressed from prison as he knew that he would be delivered one way or another, whether through death or through life. And he looked eagerly toward that day, toward the the glory to be revealed when he would be finally redeemed and Christ would be magnified in him. Then comes this question of what is Paul talking about as the subject? Right? Who, who is the creation that he has in mind here? For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits. Who is that or what is that? Well, he uses the same word for creation several times in these verses from 19 to 22. It's the same subject each time. So it's important to know who he's talking about or what he's talking about. And If we consider first the creation of God, we we might think of the angels. Is Paul talking about perhaps the angels? Well, if we consider the angels, there's two classes of angels now. There's the holy angels and there's the evil angels, those who have 
fallen from their first estate. And if we consider the holy angels, well, they were never subject to futility, were they? The holy angels never fell, so they are not groaning for any kind of deliverance. They don't know anything about fallenness and the need for redemption. They live and exist in a state of perfect holiness, attending to and waiting on and worshiping the Lord God. If we consider the evil angels, those who have fallen from their first estate, they did fall and they did become corrupted, but there's no hope of redemption for them. The Scripture teaches in Jude uh, verse 6 that the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, He, God, has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So, it is not the evil angels, it's not the holy angels that are being considered in this word, the creation. So, what about men, the world of men? And if we divide up the world of men into regenerate and unregenerate, saved and unsaved, let's look at the regenerate. Well, if we look back at verse 19, 19 says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So, the sons of God is the regenerate. Paul's saying that there is a creation that's separate from the sons of God, that are looking to an event that's going to happen to the sons of God, so they can't be the same group. Also look at verses 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption. We also is as distinct from the creation. These are two different groups. So it is not speaking of the world of regenerated men and women and children, the saved. Well, what about the unregenerate? The ungodly person is never looking forward to this coming glory that is to be revealed, is he? He doesn't even believe in it, in fact. He lives his life for his own glory in the here and the now and does not think at all about a future glory to be revealed. It's not part of his vocabulary or his thinking. So it's not the angels, it's not men or the world of men that Paul has in mind. So the question is, well, what's left in the created order? Well, you could say it this way, it's all of the non-rational part of God's creation. All of the animate and inanimate portion of the non-reasoning, non-thinking part of God's creation. So think of, for example, living creatures like the fish and the birds and the beasts that roam the earth. It is vegetation, grass and flowers and trees. It includes bodies of waters like rivers and lakes and seas and oceans. It includes dry lands and deserts, rocks, hills, mountains. It includes all the skies, the heavens above us, the weather phenomena that we experience, the heavenly bodies, the moons, the planets, the stars, the solar systems, the nebulae, all the things that God has created in the heavens. All of this taken together is really what Paul has in mind here as the creation this creation is put in the singular and not the plural. And I found Matthew Henry helpful in this regard. He said, it's because of their harmony, 
referring to creation and its original harmony and mutual dependence, and because they all constitute and make up one world that they are spoken of in the singular number as the creature or the creation. It was the King James, the old King James that says the creature. So Paul is saying that it's this creation, this this non-rational or irrational, if you will, part of creation that stretches its necks in eager anticipation of the revealing of the sons of God. What is Paul doing here by speaking of creation in this way? Well, he's doing something he's done before for us in Romans, which is personification. He is giving animation and life to the idea of creation as a person who would respond and and look forward to and eagerly anticipate just as we would. Paul did this uh, with sin, you remember, in Romans chapter 6. In three distinct ways, he described sin as a tyrant who rules over all of the sons of Adam and reigns in death. He describes sin as a military general who has absolute command and authority over the sons of Adam to say, disobey God now, and we did. He also is described as an employer who pays wages, right? In Romans 6.23, and the wages of sin that he pays is death. So this is the idea. Paul is uh, shifting our minds to think of creation in this personified way. And then Paul uses another beautiful word here in the Greek, which really piles onto the first sentiment. He says that this creation eagerly waits for, eagerly waits for this revelation. Well, this is the word that means to patiently and with great care and attention wait for. So you can see how the the ideas are similar, getting up on their tippy toes and stretching their necks and really being patient and waiting while giving their attention to this future glory. And it's to what? It's to the revealing of the sons of God. And that's really what we spent a lot of our time last week looking at together. So I'm not going to rehash all of that this morning, but we did see some of the wonder of that glory that is to be revealed to us. We saw that we will not only be raised from the dead if we are not alive at the day when the Lord comes back in His second return, But we will be glorified, won't we? We will be given new bodies. These bodies of our humiliation will be transformed to be like unto His glorious body. Every son of God in that day will be revealed and we will see and know everyone. The the veil will be finally removed and even the wicked will recognize who the true sons of God are. We will share in His very glory, right? The flaming fire will not consume us. The burning glory of God will actually heal us and, and, and warm us and cause us to stand and shine in the brilliance of His own glory. We will pass through that judgment of condemnation because we are in Christ. And that's really the, the key truth of Romans 8. All those who are in Christ have passed from death to life. The judgment has been paid in full in Christ at the cross. Therefore, it is never to be paid again by His sons. And so we will rule and reign with Christ and be rewarded for the good works which He Himself has done in us. What a grace. 
And we will be given the honor of judging the world and even angels as co-judges with Christ. And then, of course, this glory that creation anticipates is also the, the seeing of the Lord Jesus Christ face to face. Seeing His wonderful face and fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3, verse 17, which says, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that day or on the day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. That is the great day of the Lord when he will put all of us on display as trophies of his grace for all to see that the Lord God is Savior. That he is Redeemer, not only Creator, but Redeemer. And it is the song of the redeemed that will be sung for all ages Brothers and sisters, that this is this event that we are not only looking forward to or told to look forward to, but the creation itself is on its tippy toes about. And here's the question, if the creation, and again, this is the non-thinking part of creation, if the creation which does not have the ability to think and reason like we have, is eagerly waiting for the revelation of the sons of God... How much more should we, the rational, reasoning part of God's creation, do the same? Are we on our tippy toes, eagerly looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? Let's take a lesson from creation in this regard. I believe that's part of the reason why this is here. If the brute beasts who have no ability to reason are greatly anticipating this day, how how much more we? We who are the pinnacle of God's creation, we who are made in the image of God, we who have been set apart from the animals and the vegetation and the skies and all these things, we have the ability to think on these things and the call is to do just that. That is what we are to do because that is what brings glory to God and what strengthens us in our walk, in our faith. Paul spent a lot of time contemplating the future glory. We know that. We see it here in his writing. I mean, I think it's clear here that Paul is caught up with this glory to be revealed in piling these phrases one upon another, this, these beautiful phrases of, that just show he's caught up in the wonder of it all. We know that Paul himself saw something of the glory because God gave him visions of this glory so he, he knows something or knew something of what, what is to come. But this truth, uh, this is the point. This truth captured his mind and his heart. It's also captured the attention of creation. And it is to capture our mind and heart as well. So the sense here is the created order of the earth are all looking to the day with great anticipation and eagerness when the sons of God will finally be revealed. And the question is, Why? Why are they, speaking of the creation, so interested in our final redemption? And Paul gives us the answers in verses 20 through 22. Look what he says next. For the creation was subjected to futility. To futility. The word for subjected is a military word that is used commonly in the Greek. And it's a word that means to line up under, to arrange troops in a military fashion under the command of a leader. 
And so Paul is saying that the creation was put under the dominion of a leader whose name is futility. Futility. That's another word for vanity, for emptiness, that which is devoid of truth. But also it it implies that which is crooked, that which is perverse, that which is depraved or decaying, corrupting. Those would all be synonyms for that. And Paul uses this word for futility in Ephesians chapter 4, 4 verse 17. He says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. The Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind separated from the life of God. And there's two key aspects of what it means to be separated from the life of God. The first is spiritual ignorance. To not have true knowledge about who God is as Lord and Savior. And the second aspect is darkness. This corruption, this lack of goodness, you could say, or lack of morality. That's what it means to walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. That's how we used to walk too, right? In darkness, in spiritual ignorance of God. Not caring about Him, but only pursuing our own pleasures and profits and gain. So you could say that this idea of futility is really just another way of describing the effects of sin. It describes the effects of sin. Creation has been placed into a position where it is not able to fulfill its purpose. Where it's not able to do what God had intended for it to do originally. That's the idea here. Creation, in other words, has been put under a curse. And you might say, well, how did that happen? How was the creation made subject to futility? Well, he first tells us in verse 19, he says, or verse 20, he says, not willingly. Not willingly. That means not voluntarily, not of its own will. And again, he's personifying creation, isn't he? Like creation has a will, as like we have. So when Paul says that the creation was subjected, it's not that the creation did something itself, but that something happened to the creation. It's a passive statement. Something was done to it at a particular point in time. He uses the aorist tense, which is the past tense. Some event in the past marked this point of subjugation, of a placing under the authority of futility. And what was that? Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. This takes us back to the account of the fall of man. Genesis chapter 3, you remember that as soon as Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they immediately experience shame, they experience fear. The Lord calls to Adam as the representative of his wife and really of all mankind and says, where are you, not physically in the garden, but where are you spiritually? Where is your location now, Adam? And the answer is fallen, fallen. And we see then that the Lord pronounces uh, judgments upon the serpent, upon the woman, and upon the man. 
But it doesn't stop there. Listen to verse 17, Genesis 3:17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field and the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you shall return. This is a very dark moment in redemptive history. This is the curse. This is the futility that Paul is now hearkening back to and wants us to think about. It's the weeds and the thorns and the thistles that were never part of God's original design of the earth until this point when sin entered and sin being disobedience to God's voice. God said, you can eat freely of every garden, of every tree in the garden, but of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of that tree, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That is the point of disobedience that plunged Adam, Eve, and all of mankind into this futility, but not only them, the creation itself, the the ground, he said, was cursed. I mean, farming and gardening in the Garden of Eden were easy. That's how God designed it, that the earth would yield her fruit willingly for Adam and Eve as a point of glory and and satisfaction that would turn their hearts and attention back to the Lord, the giver of those wonderful gifts, to praise Him. That was the whole point. Man never needed to toil and to sweat in order to get his food from the ground until after the fall. After the fall, everything has become hard. It's hard for the earth to make food. It's hard for man to, to take the food from the earth because of this curse. And man ever since has had to struggle against nature, working to eat through hard toil and sweat. And then you have this sad testimony of man's return to the ground from which he was taken. Man was not created in order to die. He was taken from the dust and God breathed into him the life of God that he would live for the glory of God as his representative on the earth. And here we have death. And and look at the impact upon the earth. The shame that the earth must endure being filled with the uncleanness of all the bodies that have been buried in the earth. That was never God's intended design for the earth. Brothers and sisters, why is it that everything fades and ultimately dies in this world, including man? It's this subjection to futility, to emptiness, to darkness, to death and decay. And Paul says this happened involuntarily on the part of creation. But it was voluntary on the part of man, wasn't it? Man sinned willingly. His disobedience was willing. Not so in the case of creation. And he and the entire creation bear the consequences to this day. This is one sin. 
Think about the ripple effect and the the far-reaching consequences that one sin has had back in the garden in Genesis 3. We're still feeling it today. That's a, a very important testimony about how God feels about sin. That He would embed this curse into the fabric of nature as a constant reminder of our sinfulness and of our need for redemption. The creation never wanted this. It was, it was dragged into this, quite honestly, because of the sin of man. The purpose of creation was always to glorify God. You remember in Genesis 1 those, and it was good statements. God saw what he created and it was good. And at the end of six days of creation, after the pinnacle, the apex of his creation, man He said, and all things were created very good, very good. Good in this sense that they perfectly mirrored the glory of God back to himself. There was no distortion at all. There was no loss in the ability to reflect glory back to God. It was, it being, creation was in perfect harmony with the Lord and was bringing him great glory. But now all of creation suffers because of us. So we go back now to Romans 8 and take a look at verse 18 again. For I consider, I conclude, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So let's now ask the question, what do the sufferings of this present time include? I would say that they also include the sufferings of creation. Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Creation is suffering. We suffer, and creation also suffers. And as we think about how this came about and the injustice from the earth's perspective, from the creation's perspective, of what has been brought upon it, I think that we have a second lesson here that we can draw. The creation suffers unjustly, not willingly, because of whose sin? Our sin. But it looks to the Lord and to His final redemption in the last day because that is when the creation will ultimately be delivered, right? Loved ones, how should we, who are the apex of God's creation, respond when we suffer unjustly? By simply being light in the midst of a dark world and even in a, in a dark body that we have, this flesh, sinful flesh. As we stand with Christ against our own sin and against the sin that we have in this world, I think we have an answer for us in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 speaks about the example of our Lord Jesus Christ who also was treated unjustly, right? Listen to 1 Peter 2 verse 19 He says this, for this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, this is referring to Christ, who was, 
nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself, or it literally says in the Greek, kept on entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So there's the example for us. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. But do you see from Romans 8 that this is also what the creation does? The creation who's been, who have been dragged into this unjust corruption, it also looks forward to the final day of redemption. It entrusts itself to God, if you will, for the final redemption because something is going to happen that's glorious to creation. Let us learn from this as well and, and, and follow the example, principally of Christ. But note also that it is creation that does this too. And I think Paul's calling this to our attention. Look, the part of creation that doesn't think does this. You, the part of creation that think and now are redeemed and have the mind of Christ, how much more should you do this? I think that's the point. I think Paul also, going back to Romans 8 here, is teaching us something really important about the sovereignty of God in this statement about the subjection of creation to futility. What is the reason that creation was made subject to this emptiness, to this corruption? Well, in the Genesis 3 account, I think one answer would be Adam. Adam, as the representative of humanity, disobeyed God, and because of that, all of creation plunged and fell because he fell. So Adam is to blame. Well, I think that's partially correct. But who is it that pronounced the curse on Adam for his disobedience? The Lord did. The Lord did. He said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, cursed is the ground for your sake. He pronounces the curse. So it was really the Lord who pronounced this curse. It was the Lord who subjected the creation to futility. But that's not the end of the story. Thank God. He says, because of him who subjected it in hope. Or in accordance with the will of him who subjected it in hope. Or another way of translating that is by reason of him who subjected the same creation in hope. The emphasis is on the Lord each time. He did this. The Lord did this. But thank God that he doesn't pronounce the everlasting curse on the creation like he did with the fallen angels, right? Who are reserved for that great judgment of the great day. Reserved in chains for everlasting destruction. No, the creation was subjected to futility. Yes, it is subjected to futility now. But he has also subjected it in hope. And the question is when? When did he do this? Because Paul uses the past tense both times when he says subjected. He subjected it to futility, past tense. He also subjected it to hope. So when did he do this? Well, I think one immediate answer would be Genesis 3. We just saw that. He pronounced the curse then, but he also purposed to bring about redemption for creation in addition to creation or redemption for man. But I would argue that this determination that God subjected the creation to hope happened way before the fall in Genesis chapter 3. How is it, brothers and sisters, that the Scriptures speak of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world? 
even before anything was created, he was slain in the mind of God. How is it that Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31 that the Lord has loved us, his people, with an everlasting love, a love which had no beginning? How is it that Ephesians 1 speaks of the plan of redemption as the Father choosing us in the Son before the foundation of the world? That He predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, all according to the good pleasure of His will. When did that happen? That happened in eternity. That happened in the mind of God. And in the same way, it happens with creation. The Lord knew that Adam and Eve would disobey. He allowed them to disobey and to fall. He did not author sin. The Scripture is clear on that. But He allowed that to happen. He purposed it so that not only would creation be subjected to futility, but ultimately one day it would be glorified. And man would be glorified. And He would be most glorified as Savior and not only as Creator. Paul is teaching us about the sovereignty of God in this one verse. Was God caught off guard when Adam sinned? Did Adam somehow do something that threw the plan of God out of kilter and now he had to scramble to find some other way of making all the ends meet so that, or all of the means meet so that the end would come out the same? No, not at all. That's not how Scripture portrays our Lord. He is sovereign. He is all-knowing, all-wise, and all of His decrees are from eternity. That's why they all come to pass in time with certainty. So the ultimate reason the creation was allowed to be subjected to futility is also because he has planned to subject it to hope. And that's not just uh, something wishful, but this word hope, elpis in the Greek, we see it many times in Romans. It's a rock-solid hope. It's an assurance, in fact, of something that is going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. That's what he's talking about here. Yes, man was instrumental in the curse. He disobeyed. But God is sovereign. He is the primary cause, and He overrules all of it for His glory. What is this hope? Well, look at verse 21 with me now. Romans 8, 21. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The creation will also be delivered. That's the word that means set free or set at liberty from this bondage. That's the word for slavery. And it's enslaved to corruption, to that which is perishing and decaying. I've got a few observations that I want to make just on this verse here, and, and, and then we'll close. But here's the first one. Creation, we're taught, is enslaved to this corruption. And it's enslaved by the sovereign decree of God. The principle of corruption is firmly embedded in all of creation. And that means this, that creation is not able to free itself. It's not able to free itself. Try as it will, it is subjected to futility because this is the Lord's own cursing upon it. He's the one who cursed it and he must be the one to free it. Corollary to that, related to that, is this truth, which I think we lose sight of a lot of times. The creation can't free itself. We also can't free the creation from this bondage. We can't save the world, the created order. 
and we see man in history trying to do just that, right? Trying to set creation free from this bondage of corruption. Trying to find a way to reverse the curse, to eliminate disease, uh, to somehow find the key to life and life eternal, to maximize life. I mean, think about the whole plight of modern medicine. It is wonderful to have medicines, and I'm not saying that this is not a gift from God. It is. But brothers and sisters, where are we placing our hope and our trust? That's the question. We're not to place it in man or anything that comes from man. We think about maybe the, the technologies of, uh, that are related to energy. There's some wonderful technologies that have been developed relating to harnessing energy and to reducing carbon footprint, right? Wind, solar. But do we put our trust in those things? Are those things the very things that will somehow save this earth and liberate this earth or extend the length of this earth forever? Hey, recycle if you want to recycle. <laughs> but don't put your trust in it. That's not going to save the planet. Um, only the one who subjected the creation to futility is able to free it. God alone can deliver the earth. And, and you know what? He will. He will. It's been promised and decreed. His intent is not to preserve this earth in its current form forever. This earth is going to change radically. And we're going to look at that next week. Um, he's going to first destroy this earth. He's going to melt it down. But then he will remake it. He will remake it. He will restore paradise lost. And it will be um, restored to a condition that is beyond our imagination, a condition which will remain forever. But that's not come just yet. So the, the lesson here is, brothers and sisters, you are not responsible for saving the earth. Isn't that freeing to know that? The earth is a stewardship, right? It's been given to us. It's been entrusted to us so we are not to abuse the creation. There are ditches on both sides of a road, right? We are not to abuse the creation. That's dishonoring to God. That's not why he gave us the earth and its resources. But on the other hand, there's a huge difference between using the resources God has given us faithfully and worshiping those resources. No, the earth was given for us to enjoy and to use for the glory of God. So use the earth. Use its resources like this, from a heart of gratitude for what the Lord has given you. Let it be that cause that would turn your heart to him in praise and thanksgiving and honor him that way. Give thanks to God for whatever you take and use from this earth. It's here to serve us. It's, it's not that the earth is, or that we are here to serve the earth. We've gotten that reversed. I'm sorry, this message is not friendly to the environmentalists, but actually I don't apologize for that because this is the word of God, Okay? Um, the earth was never meant to feed our lust, right? It, the problem has always been the heart of man. He distorts and misuses everything that he comes into contact with because of this disease called sin. So, first, only the Lord can free the earth from its present state of slavery to corruption, and he will. Second observation is this. Creation's liberation is linked to our deliverance. That is really important that we see this. 
Look what he says, because the creation itself, he uses the word also, also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. This verse is the answer to the question we asked back in verse 19. Why is it that creation is on its tippy toes looking with so much anticipation for our day of revelation? The answer is because its own deliverance is tied to ours. We, our deliverance is the signal or the sign creation's deliverance has now come. That's why it looks for it with such eagerness. Paul is teaching us here that creation's destiny is totally linked to that of the sons of God. This is that truth that has been hinted at in other places in the Scriptures that's not clearly stated or so clearly stated as it has been revealed in Romans 8. And we're going to see something of that as we read Psalm 98 in just a minute together. Uh, But think about this, just just so we're clear in our minds. Adam, when he was created in the image of God, he was created as an image bearer for God. He was delegated authority by the Lord to be his co-regent, if you will, his vice deputy, his representative who acts in the place of sovereign God in the earth. And so long as Adam and Eve were obedient to the Lord, the earth enjoyed freedom. And man enjoyed the blessings of the earth in full. That was the original design. But when Adam fell, all creation also fell with him. He drew his stewardship, that which he was standing upon, into the curse with himself. Lloyd-Jones said it this way, Man, because of his sin, was not allowed to enjoy the paradise into which God had placed him. When he fell, all that was under him fell with him and became a creation which is subject to vanity and which is in the bondage of corruption." That's why creation looks so longingly for our redemption. Because our final redemption signals that it too will be delivered. Now I want you to see an example of this teaching and how it was hinted at in the Psalms. Back up with me to Psalm 98. This was our corporate reading this morning. And this is a psalm that speaks of a new song, S-O-N-G. And the song is the song of redemption. The the Lord is not only creator, but he is savior. And I want you to look with me at verse 4. Here's the call that goes out to all the earth. So this includes men, of course, mankind, but it also includes all of the creation as we've defined it this morning. Shout joyfully to the Lord, Psalm 98.4, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord the King. And then here's some of these personifications. Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity." question. Why would all creation rejoice and anticipate the day that the Lord is coming to judge the earth when so many in the earth are ungodly and the coming of the Lord will mean their certain destruction? Because creation knows that this is the same day of the Lord that will be the liberation for the sons of God. 
when they will be glorified. And as soon as they are glorified, creation itself will be glorified. So all creation claps its hands and says, come, Lord, come. We get a little hint of this also in Isaiah chapter 55. You'll recall this verse. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. What are they clapping about? What are they excited about? They're excited about the redemption of man. First as a little plant that has just sprung forth from the earth and begins to grow into a, a tree, a tree that will bear fruit in this life as we are sanctified, as the Lord changes us to be more like Himself by His Spirit, and one day we'll finally redeem even our bodies and we will be completely saved. Creation claps its hands. It looks forward to that day because its deliverance is tied to ours. Third observation and final observation. The Lord's redemption is bigger and more comprehensive than only the redemption of man. We started this section in Romans 8.18 talking about the glory which shall be revealed to us. And we talked about last week how there's various aspects of that glory we're going to see, right? As we're changed, as the Lord comes, as all of those details we described. But here's the second aspect of the glory to be revealed. Creation itself will be changed and we will behold it. We will see it. There's a a bigger, more sweeping redemption that takes place than just the redemption of our bodies. We play a part in it, a big part, I would say. But here's the other part of it. There is a restoration and a harmony that the Lord is going to bring to all things. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he, the Lord, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him, that is, in Christ. All things are going to be brought together in him and restored to a state of perfect harmony. Colossians 1.20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, this is to Christ, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Peter, preaching in Solomon's portico in Acts chapter 3, this was our call to worship this morning, said, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Loved ones, there is a global restoration project that the Lord is going to bring about when he returns. He will reverse the curse of sin. Every vestige of decay and corruption and death will be nullified, will be reversed And he will bring about a total harmony in all the created order once again. There's more to, a lot more to think about that, and we're going to talk more about that next week as we describe or get into this glorious liberty of the children of God. But I hope you see there is something wonderful that is coming, that he has promised and planned from eternity for us and for the creation that 
the Lord would be glorified as he is restoring harmony. This original condition is going to be recaptured. This current state of death and decay that we live in is temporary. It feels like it's going on forever, but it's not. A glorious day is coming when he will redeem creation and us. You know, one other thing that um, Lloyd-Jones brought out to my thinking, and really I wanted to share with you because I thought it was such a really wonderful point. He said, picture the beauty of creation that you've experienced in your life today. Think of, you know, places you've been in this state or in this country or around the world, scenes that you've seen of God's creation, the, the painting on the canvas that he has created in the skies in a beautiful sunset, canyons and, and rivers and all the things that you could probably think of. Um, all of those things that we are seeing now that we recognize have a glory in them. We're seeing those things in a state of corruption. Do we realize that? We're seeing those things in their fallen state, not in their original glorious state. So what does that tell you about what it must have been like before the curse? Breathtaking, constantly. Next time, Lord willing, we are going to look at what the Scripture has to say about creation's deliverance and and really look at the positive side of why they're stretching their necks to see what is to come. Um, but there's some wonderful lessons that we can learn from creation, aren't there? Let's take our cue from creation and eagerly stretch our necks to see that future glory that is to be revealed, to spend time, much time, in contemplation of these truths. Let's also learn a, lessons, a lesson in patience when we are... Um, suffering unjustly. Let's learn this lesson that we are to set our hope entirely on the Lord, to continue our entrusting ourselves to Him, knowing that He will make all things right in His time. Loved ones, no sin will go unpunished. Not one. Every sin is going to be punished, either in the sinner themselves, which is hell, an eternity of suffering, which will never fully pay that debt because it's not possible for the debt to be paid, the other way is in Christ. The, the, the sins will be paid either on the sinner's head or on Christ's head. And they were paid on Christ's head for all those who are his own. And, and if you belong to him, he will bring you to know this truth that your particular sins were paid for on that cross at Calvary. That all your sins have been put away from God as far as the east is from the west. Those sins have been put behind his back so that he will not look at them anymore. Buried in the depths of the oceans. This is the mercy and the compassion of God our Savior. And I trust that you know him this morning. And if you don't, repent. Turn from your foolish ways of thinking and, 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 and ask that the Lord would open your heart and mind to his word. That you would desire to live for his glory, that you would see his salvation that he already has revealed in his son, the Lord Jesus, and that you would embrace him wholeheartedly, trusting in him and not in yourself in the least bit for righteousness, for standing with God, and you will be saved. Our God subjected the entire creation to futility, right? 
and we learn that it was because of one sin. Here's maybe one final thing that I would leave with you. How should that change our thinking about our sin? If one sin by Adam and Eve can have such a ripple effect, such a destructive effect on all of history, how does our sin today impact ourselves? How does our sin impact our brothers and sisters in the church? How does our sin impact loved ones, family, friends, coworkers, all of those relationships? What's the ripple effect that our one sin that maybe we don't think is very significant actually has? Brothers and sisters, that should make us very grateful for the work of Jesus Christ to take away not just that one sin, but all of our sins. Let's praise him this morning and pray in Jesus' name. Father, thank you so much for the wonderful uh, encouragement that you have for us in your word. That, Lord, you are a redeemer. You are a savior. You have made a way, Father, for all of us in Christ to be redeemed by the blood of your precious lamb. He bore the burden at Calvary in full for us, Lord. Father, we were so thankful as we learn more about these truths and how important it is that Christ did the work he did. We could not have done this for ourselves, Lord. If you hadn't sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin to deal with our sin, we still would be condemned. But Father, thank, thank you that we are not. Thank you that he has paid it all. Thank you that even the creation which suffers and groans under the weight of our sin will one day be redeemed. And that we will dwell with God and God will make his tabernacle finally with us visibly we will see Christ face to face. We will live with him and bask in his glory forever. Father, thank you for the great hope that you've set before us. Help us, Lord, to herald this message to others. Give us your heart, Lord. Turn us away from selfishness and from uh, vain glory, seeking our own glory. Help us to seek the kingdom of God, your righteousness, your glory because yours is the kingdom and it will endure forever. Encourage your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.